Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. We're a few days in now to this election campaign. What are the issues that are weighing on the minds of Alberta voters? What are the issues that are going to define this election, propel one of these parties to victory on May 29th? Got some new polling out done for Global News uh, by Ipsos, uh, which ranks some of these issues. What are the bigger issues on the minds of Albertans? So what are Albertans identifying as their key issues? And further to that, who are the leaders they identify as best positioned to address those issues? Well, joining us to uh, unpack these numbers in a little more detail, I'm very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Kyle Braid, uh, Senior Vice President of Public Affairs at Ipsos. Kyle, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so maybe not surprisingly, there are two big issues, it seems to me, in, in this election campaign, and there's a whole bunch of others. What, what seem to be the big issues here, first of all? Yeah, there sure are two issues, and I can't say I've ever seen a campaign where two of them are so far ahead of everything else. Uh, So it probably doesn't come as a surprise to your listeners, but the two are uh, cost of living, affordability, inflation, that's all one together. Mm -hmm. And the other is health care in Alberta. The they are mentioned by about half of residents as being an important issue to them. Uh, the next most important issue is down at only about 25%, and that's the economy, which is usually the number one or the number two issue in campaigns. Right. So health care and affordability, these are two big issues. That's probably not unique to, to Alberta either, but uh, those are big ones here. So that's, as you say, over half of voters identifying those? Yeah, 54% say cost of living is something that's going to be one of their top three issues, and 52% say health care, and then you've got economy way back at 25 and taxes and the oil and gas industry and crime, which I think people suspected might play a bigger role, is only at, uh, only at 15%. Interesting. Uh, it was also worth noting, I mean, you know, the issue of the arena has kind of been front and center in Calgary in, in the last couple of weeks here, but that, that actually seems to rank pretty low in terms of uh, voter priorities. Yeah, we added it in at the last minute because it was a, a last-minute announcement before the campaign began and yeah. thought maybe it would have some resonance, but it ranked dead last of all the issues we uh, we looked at, and only 3% of Albertans and even just 3% of Calgarians uh, rated it as an important issue that will decide their vote. So people might care about it a little, but it's, it's certainly not something they're going to be used to using to vote in this election. Well, it's interesting. So once we get a sense of which issues you know voters care most about, we can then look at you know who do they trust to address those issues. And you know, just as the horse race numbers show us that this is a, a close election, I think these numbers kind of do as well. There seems to be a pretty even split between UCP leader Daniel Smith and NDP leader Rachel Notley on, on a lot of this. There is. I mean, you take a look at the the number one issue, cost of living. Uh, I think it's it's one that the UCP probably feels that has an advantage on, uh, but even there, 37% say that uh, Danielle Smith and the UCP are best to deal with it. That's only four points ahead of where Rachel Notley and the NDP are, and there's also a four-point gap in terms of voter preference in the province, so it lines up along uh, uh, voter lines with not not a big advantage for the UCP there. A bit more of an advantage for the NDP on, on health care. Uh, 40% say the NDP is best to deal with that compared to 32% for the UCP. But 40 versus 32 is not uh, its not a two-to-one margin. It's not a huge gap. It, it means that uh, both parties here have an opportunity to, uh, to stake their claims on these issues. 
So between those two big issues, there's not a lot of difference in terms of who Albertans trust to, to address them? No, it's it's fairly fairly even slight uh, slight preference for the NDP on healthcare, especially in uh, Edmonton and to some degree in Calgary. Uh, the rest of Alberta still thinks the UCP is better to deal with healthcare, but not a lot of daylight between the two parties on 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 cost of living at this point, which is probably why both of them are are talking about it quite a bit, especially mm-hmm. the UCP. So what are, are the issues where, you know, the respective leaders do seem to have a big advantage? Uh, for the, it's the usual stuff. For the, for the UCP and for, for Danielle Smith, it's, it's oil and gas issues, uh, taxes. Uh, they have a big advantage on the issue of the, uh, the Calgary Arena, but as we talked about, not a, not a big, uh, big vote-getter. For the NDP, it's the traditional stuff you would expect for, for them. It's related to programs and services rather than economic issues. It's the environment, social issues, poverty, homelessness, uh, health, and education, I would say, are, 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 are advantages for the NDP at this point. What about overall trust? Not necessarily just trust on certain issues, but, you know, just general trust, whether we believe that, you know, the leaders are honest, they're going to do what they say, uh, that kind of thing. What do we see in terms of how Albertans view these these two leaders in particular? Sure. So uh, we asked the question, who, which of the leaders uh, uh, is better described by the phrase, someone I can trust? And I guess Rachel Notley can feel good that she's ahead of Danielle Smith, but it's by 30% to 27%. There's, there's not much difference between them. And in fact, more Albertans say, I just don't know who, who I can trust. So uh, nobody really has an advantage there. Uh, you know, you might have expected that integrity and ethics would be an issue in this campaign. It's, it's low on the list of issues, and the two parties barely distinguish each other from, from that. Uh, there really is hardly anything that distinguishes uh, these two leaders. I think it's, it's partially because they're both just so well-known to Albertans, and yeah. it's hard to even imagine that these numbers are going to change much throughout the campaign. I think people, people know these, these two leaders well enough that not much is going to change their mind about the leaders. I suspect you're right. We'll see how it plays out in the weeks ahead. Uh, Kyle, appreciate the overview on all this. Thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Uh, wonderful to join you. Thank you. Thanks again. Kyle Braid, Senior VP, Public Affairs at Ipsos, the latest Ipsos numbers and exclusively for Global News, identifying the issues Albertans identify as top priorities and, and who they trust the most to deal with them. So as he says, and perhaps not surprisingly, you know, the two biggest issues right now are affordability, and that's, you know, cost of living, inflation, all of that, and health care. And, and everything else kind of pales by comparison. Does that line up with your own concerns, priorities, and who do you trust the most to address the issues that concern you the most? But off the top in this hour, let's get into the uh, whole issue of how the government intends to or believes it can regulate the Internet. Now, the Internet is maybe inevitably going to be somewhat of a wild west just given its nature Uh, but there are rules that that can and do apply when it comes to the internet or things people are doing or saying on the internet but is this government overreaching when it comes to trying to regulate the internet are they naive or is it something else that leads them to believe that they can have this degree of control over the internet and tech companies so this has come in a few forms there's bill c11 of course 
which is the Online Streaming Act, which is now going to try to apply this past now, it's law, try to apply CRTC regulations, CanCon regulations uh, to the Internet. Then, of course, we've got the Online News Act, Bill C-18, which is, I guess, kind of a way to, to get some money out of some of these big tech companies. But it's going to try to regulate the way that they provide news to their users. And we've still got lurking legislation that would crack down on what's been described as online harms. So taken together, it's a pretty ambitious approach uh, to government regulation of the Internet. And as our next guest that lays out in a really interesting piece in the Globe and Mail today, this may end up doing more harm than good. Uh, Justin Ling is a freelance journalist. He uh, also writes uh, the delightful substack called Bug-Eyed and Shameless. And as mentioned, you can read his piece uh, in the Globe and Mail today, theglobeandmail.com. Justin Ling, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Hey, good afternoon. Right. I mean, these these uh, bills all kind of exist separately from one another, but it's it's really hard to separate all of them, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we only have two bills on the table thus far. The third one has been sort of promised for more than a year. We expect to see it before uh, before this year is out. It could be quite soon, in fact. Um, but yeah, we, we we often talk about these three concepts. Um, you know, the the online streaming act, um, the new the online news act, and this forthcoming online harms act. There's three separate pieces, but they're not. They are fundamentally, um, you know, all linked together and in in practice when they were kind of up and running assume they all become law um, they're going to intermingle in a very interesting and I think very concerning kind of way so it's actually really kind of not helpful to talk about them in isolation because there are three bills um, that taken together will fundamentally shape how Canada tries to regulate run administer censor monitor the internet uh, and I think it's really worth talking about them together because I think um, while there's some laudable goals in there uh, I, I think we're talking about a very substantial change to how the internet is run and the government I don't think is being forthcoming about the extent of those changes it is profound and it is very ambitious but i guess the question is why as you say there there's some noble or laudable goals maybe in, in what the government's trying to do but how do we sum up the intent here why does the government believe that all of this is necessary well you know, listen, there's a really charitable read here, which is that the government is looking at a variety of problems and it's trying to come up with solutions. I think that, you know, there's a reason we should kind of give them the benefit of the doubt in some respects, right? You know, they're looking at the state of Canadian culture and media and, um, you know, they want there to be a place for Canadian content creators and TV shows and musicians on the internet. They don't want them to get drowned out um, by U.S. and European culture. And, and that's a fair enough goal. You know, they also want... Um, you know, news media to be sustainable in the long term. They want to make sure that uh, big tech giants that are making money off of Canadian news, like Google and Facebook and Twitter, are paying uh, their fair share and are giving uh, a Canadian media a cut, a fair cut of the advertising. And finally, they want to make sure that people are not getting harassed, threatened online. They want to make sure that our uh, sort of democracy is safe from uh, the deluge of misinformation and, and foreign influence operations. And all of those are really laudable goals, and I think regardless of how we uh, sort of go forward, we all should sort of accept that those those three chunks are, are, are pretty good ideas. Now, 
uh, you know, we have to be careful you know, that the policies we enact to tackle those those three sort of problems or opportunities actually get to the heart of those problems and doesn't in fact make things worse, right? And 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 I think when we look at the way the government has structured these proposals, it's it's pretty easy to conclude that they're equally interested in in promoting themselves to certain parts of the country and contrasting themselves against the Conservative Party, right? These are, at the end of the day, political decisions. Yeah. I think uh, you can see the political intent behind some of these policies, especially in the way in which the Liberals are framing them. So, you know, we, there's kind of a really complicated thing here, but at the heart of it, we have to accept that there are some partisan considerations. Now, we can talk a bit about kind of the impact of what all of these bills will actually have, which I think is actually quite worth Worrying, but I think we do have to acknowledge that there's some good intent here. There's some self-interest uh, on all sides, uh, and, and 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 you know there needs to be a debate and an honesty about the kind of the full scope of all of these changes. You know, in terms of how doable this all is, or reaching those goals, maybe it's a combination of naivete and and hubris, thinking that that governments yeah. actually can do all of this. Is is that part of the issue here? Yeah, absolutely, right? So, you know, let's let's talk with the about the online streaming bill, right? Um, you know, this is not just a question of promoting and encouraging Canadian content online. This is a question of the government stepping in and using the CRTC to require that major platforms promote Canadian creators. And there is some worry here that this bill will also kind of create an onus on individual YouTube stars, uh, on, on potentially Canadian musicians, on people creating videos online. Um, and we're not really sure the ways in which the CRTC will actually uh, put in place these measures. And I think there's reason to be concerned um, that, that we're going to create a two-tier internet, right? That, that, that companies are going to serve us a particular kind of Canadian internet required by the bill, and we'll give everyone else the normal internet. And if, if that's the case, right, if, if the sort of Spotify we see or the YouTube we see is different than the rest of the world, well, that raises all sorts of questions about the neutrality of the internet, and it raises concerns um, that we may not be getting access to the same quality of information, or that uh, some of those uh, big platforms will start serving us uh, things that the go- they think the government will want. Right? Like I think some of the concerns here about censorship or or government using uh, these platforms as propaganda is overblown. But whenever you get the government in the business of telling uh, broadcasters or media platforms what they ought to be showing people, you get a lot of weird consequences there, and, and, and you know, that goes double for this upcoming online harms bill. There's no doubt that we want people to not have to face, you know, hate speech online, not have to face relentless harassment or intimidation. Those are those are good goals. But when you start uh, downloading those requirements onto private companies and using the force of law to say that if you allow racial slurs on your platform or if you don't check IDs for people who are going to use your platform, which is one of the proposals the liberals are talking about, well, then we're talking about a very Canadian type of internet. And I don't trust the government or these big tech companies to manage that properly. There's other ways in which we can go after these problems without creating this big sort of Byzantine government apparatus that tells these big multi-billion dollar U.S. companies that they have to start filtering what we see because there's all sorts of unintended consequences that are going to come as a result of that. 
Well, it's a lot of this, maybe the net result of a lot of this, you know, perhaps less access to content, less information. If companies are scaling back their presence in Canada or their offerings to Canadians to either escape regulation or taxation, you know, what are the consequences of that? Well, absolutely. Let's look at this online news bill, right? The government is going to use the CRTC to require that these big platforms, Google, Facebook, Twitter, um, actually strike compensation agreements with Canadian uh, news companies. Now, again, laudable goal. We all want to make sure that our our media is well-funded. But what you're essentially doing is putting a tax on news, right? This will have some, there will be some relationship between the amount of times news outlets get shared on these platforms and how much compensation they receive, right? And we know that if you put a price on something, the producer is less likely uh, to produce it, right? This is why we have a tax on uh, CO2 emissions. This is why we have a tax on cigarettes. If we say to Google, hey, listen, every time one of your users, or every time you recommend to one of your users a Globe and Mail article, or we say to Facebook, every time someone shares a CBC article on your platform, you're going to have to pay a tenth of a cent. Well, those platforms are going to deprioritize news. We're likely going to see less Canadian news as a result. Yes, some of these outlets might get checks for you know a million, two million bucks a year, but what we're likely going to see is more American news, more entertainment news, more fluff, more cat videos, right? These these policies create unintended consequences down the line. The internet is an unbelievably complex international system that has, up until now, very well resisted the sort of regulations that would kind of balkanize the internet into a Canadian World Wide Web, an American World Wide Web. The idea of the internet is is that it's global. It's why autocratic countries like to put in these filters and content regulations and try to wall off their systems from the rest of the world. They want to control what gets seen and shared and posted. The rest of the the free world, the democratic world, has resisted those temptations really up till now. And I I really don't want to suggest that this government is out there to to start censoring all political opinions or, or necessarily spying on what you say in your private chat. I don't think that's the case. What I think they are doing is is trying to pursue a set of policies that will play well uh, to the general public, especially in Quebec, that they can contrast with the Conservative Party by saying, hey, the Conservatives don't want to fund the news. They don't want to promote Canadian content. Uh, They're okay with hate speech online. And I think the Liberals are thinking very short term, and I don't think they appreciate the real damage this could do in the long run for our creators, uh, for people who who use the internet for work, for, for our democracy. I think the long list of groups that will be negatively affected by this, and I think a lot of them are the very groups the Liberals are professing to help. Yeah, that's what's interesting about all of this, because there's been a lot of criticism from a lot of different groups, a lot of different experts. Like, not it's not just the conservatives who don't like this, right? So the no. liberals have heard all of these concerns raised. We're still sort of rushing headlong into all of this. Is is this all inevitable, or you know, is there still a chance for some common sense maybe to prevail here? It doesn't look good, to be honest. I mean, if, if you look at the submissions uh, at committee for many of these bills, you're seeing groups like Open Media, uh, which is you know a pro-digital media organization that um, you know is, is pretty kind of all over the map politically. They're against it. The Internet Society, a nonpartisan NGO that kind of advocates for the, the mechanics, the infrastructure of the Internet, 
they're against it. You can see conservative groups. You've seen the CCLA, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, other civil liberty groups. Um, you're seeing all sorts of a really disparate coalition of people raising their hand and saying, I don't think you thought this through, right? You also have some academic literature that, that is telling us that some of these policies are going to backfire. We've actually seen some really good data that suggests that the more you try and police away hate speech online, it, A, doesn't actually make the platform all that much better because a lot of other people start getting furious about it, as, as you can expect. Yeah. But we also see that people move to smaller platforms that are not regulated, that are going to refuse to abide by this law, and which get more extreme. So actually, you know, attempts we've already seen from Facebook and Twitter and elsewhere to moderate hate speech and bad language off their platforms have created a radicalization problem on smaller platforms. And, and you know, this, is, this is well understood at this point. We have good research on this. They, the liberals are ignoring it. As are the NDP and the Bloc Québécois, because both of them want to be able to stand up and say, I'm supporting Quebec culture, I'm against hate speech, and therefore anything we do that professes to be in favor of Quebec culture and against hate speech, I'm going to vote for. So frankly, the Conservatives are really the only party in Parliament that seems to be uh, skeptical of this. And and I think it's un unfortunate. You know, I would like to see more MPs, never mind the party leadership, because I think they have you know more concerns about the next election than about the utility of these bills, I would like to see more individual MPs stand up and say, hey, listen, uh, we've heard a lot of testimony that suggests that this is a problem. Maybe we should hit the brakes. I would like to see some senators who actually thus far have been really good on this, who actually put forward amendments to C-11 that were actually well regarded, that were all struck down by the Liberal government. I would like to see them get a little more activisty about this, because there are real concerns about these bills and there is a real fear that all three uh, the two we've seen thus far the one that should be forthcoming taken together could cause uh, real damage to this the real infrastructure of the internet and have real unintended consequences like I keep saying I would like to see some of our lawmakers stand up be adults think long-term, put the political considerations aside, and, and actually advocate not necessarily to kill these bills, but at the very least to fix them. Absolutely. Uh, your latest is mentioned. It's up at theglobeandmail.com. Much more at bugeyedandshameless.com. Justin Ling, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Justin Ling, freelance investigative journalist. Uh, his latest at uh, theglobeandmail.com on how, as the headline says, Justin Trudeau is trying to break the Internet and not in the viral sense. We're going to be just here this afternoon, 403-974-8255. We are back with more right after this. Welcome back. Our next guest has an interesting story to tell, and it's an important and relevant one because it concerns national security. It concerns CSIS, the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, that is tasked with helping to protect Canadian national security. Our next guest was on the front lines uh, of those efforts for over 17 years. Huda Mugbeel. Uh, her new book is called Agent of Change. My Life, Fighting Terrorist Spies and Institutional Racism. Uh, the book is out this week. Huda McBeal joins us on the line here this afternoon to talk more about the book and about her time within CSIS. Huda, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Great to be here. 
you know, 15 years, a, a life of secrecy. I imagine that, that speaking publicly about uh, your, your time there, writing about your time there must seem somewhat counterintuitive, maybe, uh, or somewhat un- unusual at some level. But why was it important for you to, to tell your story? Um, look, I wanted, my, I wanted to claim my story, to have it told in my own voice, and to add to the complexities of what it was like to be, you know, a racialized woman, um, as well as uh, working in, in a post-911 era. Mm-hmm. Um, I think these are unique experiences, um, and so I wanted to share that with Canadians. And the other thing is that I know that within our national security organizations we do lack diversity and inclusion there's been you know we saw the cases with the rcmp with dnd so i think the more that we put these stories out there the more you know the the people at the top like um uh, the rcmp commissioners and, and whatnot understand what people go through because i was surprised when uh, commissioner lucky said you know there was no systemic racism right and i thought they, they don't know about our experiences so here it is yeah. Well, let's go back to the beginning. So 2002, as you said, and just, you know, sort of in, in the aftermath of the September 11th attacks, you made the decision to, to join CSIS. What, why did you make that decision, first of all? I actually um, began my application in 2001, early 2001, before nine one one, And um, it was because I took a course in national security and my professor... Um, uh, learned that I spoke several languages and, and recommended CSIS. And so, you know, I submitted my applications and went through the entire um, the entire process, which is like really lengthy. There's psychological assessments, um, interviews, like a 10-year background, um, a polygraph. So I went through all of that yeah. um, and succeeded in August. Um, and then September 11 happened. So they pushed my class to the winter and that's that's how I started in 2002. Okay, so you you had signed up before September 11, but it was pretty clear that once that had happened, things had, had changed dramatically. Yes, well, you know, I I had an important role to play. So after my yeah. training, I was assigned to work in counterterrorism, and um, I found myself to be, to be the only woman who spoke Arabic and was able to really work on the service's most priority investigations. And that gave me, you know, um, a front view in terms of what CSIS does. And as it's shifting to from, you know, primarily uh, prioritizing counterintelligence operations to, to CT. So, you know, all government national security providers were looking to CSIS for answers about threats. And there I was <laughs> doing that for CSIS. We'll talk a bit more about the work. I, I mean, people know what CSIS is. I think, you know, the, the, but the day-to-day job of what CSIS agents do, you know, seems, I think, still kind of mysterious to people. Like, what, what was your job exactly? I was hired as an intelligence officer, and uh, there's two roles primarily, analytical and investigative. So I spent four years in our headquarters in Ottawa, um, and my role was to, I was obtaining um, information from our na- uh, regional offices, um, taking that information, analyzing it, looking at big picture, um, you know, writing memos and whatnot. 
Um, as well as uh, uh, we all liaise with our foreign partners from headquarters. So, you know, meetings uh, with foreign partners like the CIA, the FBI, as well as domestic partners like Global Affairs and the RCMP. Um, yeah, so those are the kind of things that you do analytically at headquarters. And then uh, the investigative uh, part is working in a regional office, um, and that's, you know, primarily going out, interviewing people, recruiting sources, developing sources, um, and it's, it's uh, you know, the, the more exciting part of the job. Yeah. Well, at what point, though, did you realize maybe that, you know, these, these issues existed or these barriers existed, the, the institutional racism you say you encountered, you know, even just the, the suspicion or questions of your loyalty? When, when did that first become noticeable? Oh, um, right away. Oh, really? <laughs> During my interviews, um, you know, and I, and I write about this in the book, but in very subtle ways. And, you know, I thought, okay, this is, you know, what, what racialized people have to go through. You know, you hear that and, and you just go on about your day. But, you know, it became a real big issue after I wore the hijab. And I, um, you know, all of a sudden the institution decided that they wanted to redo my security clearance, which I was perfectly entitled to. And, you know, I, so I had a lot of uh, negative experiences following wearing the hijab. Right. And, and so this was something that was, was ongoing for years. I mean, as you say, you started to encounter this very early on. You, you were there through until, I believe, 2017. So how did you deal with it over those years? You know, it takes resilience and it takes uh, looking at big picture, right? So the mandate is public safety, protecting Canadians, um, contributing to international security. I had a lot to offer and it was really special to be in demand in this way Mm -hmm. um and so you know i liked the work i was committed to the mandate and so everything else i felt okay just block it out of your way you know live with it navigate find allies do what you gotta do to do the job (laughs) right uh, and, and did you feel as though you were able to do the job? And, and, you know, bigger picture, do you feel like CSIS is able to do the job it's tasked with doing? Um, well, I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was able to contribute to, um, you know, a lot of uh, counterterrorism operations, counterintelligence. Um, and so, you know, I, I feel I did what... Um, I expected of myself to do. I was a very good intelligence officer and highly thought of, uh, you know, and worked in all the different programs. In terms of CTIS able to do its job, I think they can do it better. (laughs) So, you know, there's always room for improvement. And um, I think one of the things that are, that really need to change is toxic work cultures within national security organizations. Um, you know, given the history, it's structured in a way that is, you know, very much um, conservative. Uh, there's hierarchies, authoritative. And I think in this day and age, that's just not going to work anymore. And, you know, we've paid the price for it as Canadians in terms of the lawsuits with the RCMP for $100 million and and D&D and, you know, and thesis and so on. So um, change has to happen. Are you seeing any signs of that? Um, some, some, right? But what, you know, there, 
constantly saying they're going to train people, that they're going to hire better. Um, and what I want to see is uh, more of career advance- advancements for people that are racialized and women within these institutions. Um, I also want to see, uh, I want to make sure that there is a, a transparency on that and that there is um, outside intervention to ensure that's going on. So when I look at the history of CSIS, you know, initially when they were, um, when they were, uh, when they came into uh, force, you know, it was the RCMP Security Service. And then it was CSIS, uh, it was RCMP officers, and they only hired uh, people from the military and the police and kept that culture. And they were forced to, uh, as the review body called it, the term civilization, they, they were forced to get civilians with university degrees. And it was also, again, forced from the outside to ensure that we, ha- we were, um, uh, you know, bilingualism was in effect, women in effect. So there needs to be that intervention and monitoring. And that's what the Americans do. That's what the British do. Um, annually, you know, in, like they're questioned in Congress in terms of, you know, what have they done to, to in terms of re, uh, retention of uh, women and minorities? Because a lot of people do tend to leave after, you know, a long period of, of not seeing uh, people like you reflect, reflected in management or decision making in an organization. I wonder what kind of connection there is between some of these issues and, and the work CSIS does. You know, you were critical, for example, uh, of CSIS uh, with the, the uh, Alexander Bissonnette case, the, the massacre at this mosque in Quebec City in 2017. Does any of this, you think, lead to blinders when it comes to certain kinds uh, of domestic radicalization or domestic threats? Yeah, well, you know, two decades decades of looking at Islamic extremism within our national security, not just CSIS, um, has made it that these organizations have been hyper-focused in this area and have neglected other threats. So the far-right threat was viewed as more law enforcement. Mm. Um, and, you know, but when, when the Quebec um, attacks occurred, you know, they were slow to respond to it. But I think today... There is that understanding that that threat is also transnational and there needs to be, you know, further collection and analysis. And we've seen some far right, uh, violent far right groups being uh, listed as well. So it, it was a slow response, but it's but it's moving and it's, um, um, you know, they're they're in a better place now saying that also at the same time, um, the threats have increased. Um, so I don't know, like if you've heard of this Ramadan, how many attacks have occurred um, in Toronto, um, uh, the the family in London. So these, it, it's it's unfortunate that all of this is happening in Canada, um, and it's like the highest uh, number of um, attacks against Muslims in the G7 countries. So why is that occurring? CSIS has certainly been the news as of late regarding the, you know, the threats uh, from from China, the issue of foreign election interference. And it's interesting to see uh, there are those uh, at CSIS who have felt compelled to leak stories to the press, uh, you know, to to try to bring these issues to the forefront. I mean, you're a whistleblower yourself, I think, on some issues. I mean, your thoughts on on how all of that's been handled. And I, I do wonder, I mean... Was was China uh, on the radar? Was China a big threat um, as far as CSIS was concerned during your time there? 
Um, yeah, well, China, we've always had a um, China counterintelligence um, program. Um, at the same time, you know, uh, China's our second trading partner. So it's a, it's a very complicated relationship. Yeah. Um, and, you know, looking at these allegations of the Globe and Mail, it's, it's disconcerting. It's very serious. Um, and, you know, the whistleblower is, do, is doing this in, out of public interest, right? He's seeing that our institutions aren't doing what they're meant to do. So, you know, is, the RCMP should be charging people who are working on behalf of foreign agents um, and as well as global affairs should be, um, you know, um, kicking out diplomats that are uh, threatening um, MPs' families as right. well as... Uh, you know, police stations. So there's been, you know, very aggressive um, activities from the PRC in Canada. And our allies don't want to see that we're the weak link in the Five Eye Alliance. Um, they want to make sure that we uh, are able to protect our information, but also that, um, you know, uh, adversaries uh, don't have access to, to information that we share amongst ourselves. You know, as to, to, you know, back to the reason why you wrote this book, I think Canadians, we all have a vested interest in making sure that CSIS is, is operating as, as it needs to be. Um, so part of what you're doing is, is to hopefully bring about some of that change. What, what do you want Canadians to, to take from this book? Um, you know, I want to show everyone that, you know, racialized Canadians, immigrants like me, have a lot to offer. Um, and that, you know, this, it, it's, it's a bit about the discrimination I face, but it's also about my contributions. Um, and only in that kind of, in these kind of atmospheres, we, ha- we can able to meet our mandates. It's an essential and imperative part of doing national security work. When I look at, uh, you know, like I told you, the analytical, the investigative, you need foreign languages. You want to yeah. tackle China, you need foreign languages. Yeah. You want to tackle you know, like the latest uh, um, cyber attacks and, and whatnot, look at the universities. You know, half the student bodies in um, in uh, math and science and technology are racialized Canadians. So we need to get people, the right people, talented people in these organizations so that we are able to protect the country. Well, the book is called Agent of Change, My Life Fighting Terrorists, Spies, and Institutional Racism, available uh, this week, in fact. Tudor McBeal, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really do appreciate this. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate it, too. Thank you. All right, there you go. Uh, over 15 years uh, of service uh, on the front lines of uh, the national security efforts with CSIS. Huda McBeal, her book is called Agent of Change, My Life Fighting Terrorists, Spies, and Institutional Racism. Welcome back. Well, a big shakeup in junior A hockey uh, in B.C., a decision that could have ramifications or implications right across the country, including here in Alberta for both junior A teams and athletes. Those in junior A are aspiring to play junior A. And it sort of raises the question, I guess, is uh, to, to what role junior A is meant to play in athlete development. Major junior, as it's known, the CHL, the, you know, the WHL, the OHL, the Q, is seen as a pathway to the NHL, a professional hockey. Uh, junior A is not necessarily seen the same way, uh, but it's definitely become a vehicle of choice for athletes looking to maybe play college hockey in the U.S. as a pathway to the NCAA. Because, of course, playing the CHL, you're ineligible for NCAA scholarships. And so there's certainly a lot of college scouting of, of junior A hockey. 
So what BCHL is trying to do here is to, to change that development model. But they believe that in order to do so, they need to be independent. They need to sever ties with Hockey Canada. And that's exactly what's been announced. I believe June 1st is when it officially takes effect. So kind of sending shockwaves to Junior A Hockey right across the country. Joining us to talk about the decision, the implications, why they're doing this, is Chris Hab, who is the CEO of the BC Hockey League, more at bchl.ca. Chris, thank you so much for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, this is getting a lot of attention, uh, as you're well aware, right across the country. It's it's a big decision. But give us an overview of why you felt it was a necessary one. Well, it's a long time coming, first of all. It's a, a, a discussion that has been at our board table for, uh, I, I would hazard to say, a, a decade at least. The reasoning behind it is that we think that the Canadian development model, which was written over 17 years ago, has really put Junior A in a situation where it couldn't evolve. Uh, It made Junior A more or less a feeder system for Major Junior. And what's happened uh, in in our league, and and certainly to a degree in, in the Alberta Junior Hockey League, is that they've grown to the point where they're generating a lot of college commitments mm-hmm. and and we see college as a development route uh, as well as major junior and so what we're saying to Hockey Canada is there should be two paths you know one that's supported for kids that want to go to college and develop in in the PCHL or the AGHL and then obviously the existing one which we support fully as well it's just they should be supported, and they're both important. Right. And and so the rules that Hockey Canada has in place, so the restrictions regarding uh, athletes under the age of 18, that, that was the big obstacle here. It's definitely one of them, and it's maybe the easiest one to understand for the general public because it literally says that if you're a 16- and 17-year-old player and you're an elite player and you want to go to the province of British Columbia to play hockey, you can't. Uh, you can't play junior A hockey, but you can go and you can play major junior. Right. You can even go to the academies as a 14- and 15-year-old. So we've never really understood why junior A can't have the exact same access to these young athletes who choose to go to college as opposed to follow a different route. Right. So a 16 or 17 year old, as you say, so, you know, a kid from Alberta who's 16 or 17 could go play for the, you know, Saskatoon Blades or, you know, the Kelowna Rockets. But a 16 or 17 year old in Alberta who wanted to play junior A with the aspiration of going on to U.S. college would be forced to play basically where they live. Yes. Or, and, and strangely enough, this is happening, go to the States. So we don't understand why they're restricted from coming to a good league in their own country. Uh, And so their choice is to go to leagues in the United States where they're not restricted. So under this change then, a 17-year-old from Alberta or Ontario who aspires to maybe get a college scholarship in the U.S., maybe looks now at B.C. as an option, what does that mean for BC players? Does that mean fewer opportunities for, for BC players because they don't have the option of coming to Alberta or going to you know Saskatchewan or Manitoba? 
Yeah, and we made sure that we took care of our BC players. So right now, our roster minimum is you have to have five BC players on your roster, and that has not changed, and it will not change. So the athletes that are coming to play as BC-borns are simply going to be playing in a better league. Is it still going to be called or considered Junior A? We've never really understood the the categorization because Junior A across this country is so different. Yeah. Uh, the brand of Junior A that we play, which is, you know, half of the players in our league get college commitments. That's more college commitments than all of the other Junior A leagues combined. So we we said to Hockey Canada, we think there's room for another tier here. Why don't we uh, create a, a group that... Uh, but doesn't have exactly the same regulations as the the rest of Junior A and create another championship. So these are all ideas that we've been trying to get an audience for, but we have not been able to prevail. What kind of partnership has there been with the NCAA in, in developing this? Really, it's uh, the NCAA recognizes our league as a, a system that, that feeds their rosters. I mean, currently, 25% of NCAA Division One rosters are made up of players who came through the BC Hockey League. It's a ridiculous stat when you think about it. So the NCAA really doesn't care whether we're part of Hockey Canada. They just want us to t- keep producing great players. But if there's that level of success already, doesn't that, you know, say something about the status quo or, or that was there even a need for a change if there's, there's that level of development already happening? Well, and I've had that question asked a number of times. Um, we compete with uh, the USHL for players. The USHL has just about every one of their players with a college commitment. We're at half. Someday we'd like to be at full. We think that Offering kids an education through college commitments due to their hockey skill in a good league is something that we should all aspire to. So what are the ramifications if other provinces go down the same path here? Well, that's really up to those provinces. Uh, the, the way we're looking at this, I mean, we left the Canadian Junior Hockey League uh, three years ago. Uh, because it really wasn't representing what the BC Hockey League was. I think what will happen is all of these leagues will look at what happens with the BCHL and ask themselves, is, is there something about the system that I would like to change? We haven't been successful. That doesn't mean others won't be. And it also doesn't mean that we wouldn't come back if the system uh you know, gets out of some outdated regulations and, and turns into a modern system. Now, you know, there, there are obviously questions about Alberta. I mean, logistically, Alberta could could be a part of this or Alberta teams could be a part of this. I mean, can you comment on that at all? There have been any conversations that, that you, can, you can comment on with the AJHL or, or specific Alberta teams? Our position is that we're doing this for the BC Hockey League, and we're, we need time to make sure that we've stabilized all 18 of our franchises under, uh, you know, without a federation above us. So, no, we haven't talked to anybody about anything but what we're doing in BC. Mm-hmm. And so in terms of eligibility, this is still basically a, a four-year model or four-year window for players to play at this level, or, or did you see this now becoming maybe a slightly younger league as a result? 
Yeah, we, we hope it, it does, because what we think is we're a development league, and what we want to do is send kids off to college. And a college uh, entrance is usually when you're around 18, 19. Right. So getting these kids a little bit younger, and again, we're not talking about very many 16-year-olds, to be completely honest. Sure. We're talking really about 17-year-olds. We think getting them into a, a good competitive situation where they're playing against some of the best players in the world is a way to prepare them to move on to college and in some cases to move on to the NHL. All right. So this will basically, does this take effect then in time for this coming season then? Is, is that going to give time or teams enough time over the next few months to sort of adjust to this, recruit players, or how different are things going to be immediately? Every year what happens with Hockey Canada is the scheduled year, the season, ends on May 31st. And so this will take effect June 1st, which we think gives our, our team some time to adjust. And, uh, and so for next season, we'll have uh, our new regime in place. All right. Well, much more on all of this. Again, bchl.ca. Chris, really appreciate you making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks so much for this. Thank you very much. All the best. That's uh, Chris Hab. He's uh, CEO of the BCHL, bchl.ca. So, yeah, it's, it's certainly, I, I think it's, it's got the hockey community right across the country talking. Like, is this the kind of change that's necessary? What do we want that junior A system to be? Is it just basically like a high-level U-20 league, just like a, a league for slightly older players? Is it meant to be sort of a college development kind of system? It is weird how the NCAA views the WHL or the Ontario Hockey League or the QMJHL as professional. It is a weird quirk. I mean, if if all of a sudden the NCAA woke up tomorrow and said, no, those aren't professional athletes, what are we talking about? They can get NCAA scholarships too. I mean, that would turn everything on its head. But it is weird. So kids who aspire to maybe go to a U.S. college, get an education, get a scholarship, and who knows where things go from there. Your option is to play junior A. Stay the hell away from the WHL uh, because that'll kill your NCAA eligibility. What is uh, to be said for in in favor of major junior hockey is uh, playing four years in the WHL. They'll pay for four years of education. If You want to go to a Canadian university uh, after you're done playing hockey. And so that's made university in hockey Canada or university hockey in Canada, I think, a lot better and frankly, a lot older, where college hockey in the U.S. is typically now 22, 23, 24-year-olds who have just come out of playing four years of junior. Anyway, so it'll be interesting to see what changes elsewhere as a result of this. And, yeah, there are rumors that there are some Alberta teams looking at the situation in B.C. Might they leave? Might they join that league? Might Alberta overall follow this path? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.